Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Did you catch Dark Brandon's latest speech about the extreme MAGA Republicans last night? It's like changed. It was extreme MAGA, it's ultra MAGA, and now it's mega MAGA, which I actually kind of like. I like alliteration. It flows. Uh, Mega MAGA Republicans last night. He spoke to the American people about the threats to democracy just days before Americans cast their ballots in the midterm elections. And we're going to get into all of that uh, when Andrew Clavin joins us in just a bit of The Daily Wire. But we begin today with a deep dive on a hugely important issue, and that is the origins of COVID. Did it come from a lab? Did it come from nature? With millions dead, we've got over a million Americans dead now around the world, uh, even more. Uh, not knowing is not an option, right? Why? How is it that we can't have a definitive answer by now? Today, we have two scientific experts with us who have completely different points of view on how it started. I'm going to be joined in a bit by Dr. Alina Chan, a molecular biologist and scientific advisor at MIT and Harvard. She wrote a book on why she believes the science points to COVID originating in a lab. But we begin today with Dr. Robert Gary virologist from Tulane University who now believes from his research that COVID did not originate in a lab, but instead came from nature. And he was somebody closely in touch with Dr. Fauci at the beginning of this whole thing before uh, Dr. Gary and others published a piece in Nature magazine saying this looked like it had natural origins. The Megyn Kelly Show is supported by Grand Canyon University. Founded in 1949, GCU is a private Christian university that's dedicated to delivering an affordable and transformative higher education. Their vibrant campus is located in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, and according to Niche.com, ranked a top 25 best campus in the USA. As of June 2023, GCU offers 330 academic programs, with over 270 of them online, allowing you the freedom to earn your degree on your time from wherever you are. At GCU, your degree, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate, integrates the free market system and a welcoming Christian worldview. Learn more about GCU's programs, competitive tuition rates, and scholarship offers from your university counselor. They're part of the supportive graduation team that takes a personalized approach to helping you achieve your academic goals walking alongside you every step of the way. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. For more info or to enroll, visit gcu.edu. 
Dr. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. All right. So let's just get into it because as I understand it, the best case, and forgive me because I am not a doctor, but the best case for this coming from a lab is that it has something called a furin cleavage site in it. And that Mm -hmm. is something not in, except in very rare cases seen in nature and that it's never been seen in, in a coronavirus of this type ever before. This is it. And it just so happens to emerge in the very same city where there's a lab doing exactly this kind of research, right? So what did you, what, how do you dismiss the furin cleavage site? Okay. So just to correct a few things, um, you know, furin cleavage sites are not rare in coronaviruses at all. There are many coronaviruses that have furin cleavage sites. So of this type, like SARS, like those types of coronaviruses. Okay. So the, you know, the SARS like coronaviruses, they're a specific subgenus of a genus in the coronavirus family. There are lots of coronaviruses, okay? Okay, but uh, is it true that there's never been a furin cleavage site in a SARS-type coronavirus? A so- okay, so if you if you draw that line very narrowly, so l- let me give you an analogy here. I, I can you just, it, answer, but, just, just answer and then give me my, my analogy because that way we can keep me understanding. So in the subgenus, this, this small part of this uh, genus of the beta coronaviruses, there's not been another one with a furin cleavage site. But l- let me okay. tell you what so that, that's, no. that, that's like. So, so I've heard the analogy, you know, okay, it's like finding a, a horn on a on a horse in, a, in, in one city. But, you know, that's not really... Uh, and, and, you know, looking for unicorns, right? So it's it's not really a unicorn. It's like finding a horn on a white horse. But there are, you know, there are lots of different colors of horses, right? So you've got black horses and brown horses and, you know, spotted horses and the like. And all these brown and black and spotted horses, you know, they, you know, they could have horns, right? You know, and, and that that's the furin cleavage site. So it's like saying, you know, there's just one small member of the family that, you know, has an unusual feature and, and you know, somehow or other that's unusual. Mm, okay. Not, I mean, <laughs> and there's, a, there's a, a, a wide range of scientists who disagree with your assertion on that and say that it's, sure. it, it is yeah. highly but unusual there's, there's and a it's a lot the of other reasons gun. too that think that that furin cleavage site is natural. It's a, it's a site in the virus where, you know, that changes very frequently. Okay. It's, it's a highly volatile site. Uh, there's nothing unusual about that furin cleavage site. When you look at it, um, you know, it's actually, if you compare it to other coronaviruses, the furin cleavage site, the nucleotides that were put in there are out of frame. And that probably doesn't mean much to many of your viewers, but it's very significant for, for a virologist who, you know, if you think that it was cloned in there somehow, there's really no reason for a scientist to put that in out of frame. And there's some other features of it too that, that look perfectly well, natural. There is a reason for scientists to put it in there if they're researching back coronaviruses and looking for ways to make them more dangerous or more contagious mm-hmm. in humans, which is exactly what they were doing in this Wuhan lab. Well, you know, I don't think they were trying to make them more dangerous. They were trying to figure out how they, uh, you know, cause disease in, in people. So there's a there's a there's a big difference between, you know, trying to do work that would, you know, create a bioweapon and one that's just, you know, trying to find out, you know, what what kind of viruses are out there and what are potentially, uh, you know. Yeah. but I, OK, I, I accept that. But but they definitely were looking at bat coronaviruses in this Wuhan lab and, and ways. I'll just go with your language mm-hmm. to make them more contagious. And the yeah. furin cleavage site was a way to, as I understand it, and this is how it's explained to me, um, yeah. 
to basically it, it, you insert this in, it tells the cell, open up. I'm something you want, but it's a lie. It's not something the cell wants. It's dangerous. And then it tells the cell to manufacture more coronavirus. And then the cell complies. And then they go out and they attack other cells. And it's almost like a computer virus in the way it it multiplies very efficiently. And that's what a furin cleavage site does. And that's why we don't really like furin cleavage sites in, in viruses like this. Uh, well, you know, a lot, lot of coronaviruses have furin cleavage sites. I mean, there are two common cold coronaviruses that infect people um, that, you know, have furin cleavage sites. So it's not necessarily the, you know, the smoking gun of a, you know, a gain of function research or anything along those lines. It's just, you okay, know, but you're, something you're, that you're back viruses back occasionally pick up on. You know. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to explain what a fear and cleavage site does and why we don't like it and why it's a problem yeah. in the coronavirus. Well, lots of viruses have it, even you know these relatively you, mild. You know, well, you said that before, but then you already admitted not in the SARS family, and that's why people are suspicious of this one. Um, so, here, but here's the thing: so we don't like the the fact that it's got a fear and cleavage site, and there's a reason why the the Wuhan lab and Peter Daszak's group, EcoHealth Alliance, which is funded by the United States, by Fauci's group, that they mm -hmm. wanted to experiment with the furin cleavage site being put into a coronavirus very much like this one. They asked for permission. They wanted funding from the Defense Department, which the Defense Department said no to, saying it was too, they believed it would be too dangerous. Nonetheless, we yeah. believe this kind of work was being done at the Wuhan lab. Do you dispute it? Yeah. Well, I do dispute it. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, I, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there that that say that, you know, a U.S. lab, you know, and laboratory technologies that were developed here were then, you know, somehow or other used to create the SARS coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2. I mean, there's just really no evidence for that whatsoever. There's a lot more scientific evidence on the, you know, the fact that this virus emerged just like a lot of other emerging viruses do from nature, from the wildlife trade. Well, I concede to you there is no evidence that this coronavirus we've been dealing with, SARS-CoV-2, came from the Wuhan lab or 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 from there's no evidence there's no proof or, or from proof. American technology and I think that's very yeah. important to point out I mean you know that a lot of fingers have been pointed at some scientists in the U.S. like uh, you know like Peter Daszak and 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 some some scientists at the University of North Carolina for example saying that they somehow or other engineered this furin cleavage site into SARS-CoV-2. There is absolutely no evidence for that. They didn't do that. I got that. you. They, and, and, and we're talking, we're trying to make a distinction now between general coronavirus research, back coronavirus research that may have included insertion of a furin cleavage site and research that led to this coronavirus we've all right. been dealing with in this pandemic. And, yeah. and that second yeah. leap, there's no proof for that yet. There's supposition, there's circumstantial evidence, people have their beliefs. <laughs> but I, I can see to you- A pointing conspiracy theorists like to do that, but you know, it, it just didn't happen. In that way. Well, well, I don't know if that's true either. Uh, there's no proof to, to exonerate him either, but there's no proof condemning him. So so but on the first question of, of the research he was doing on coronaviruses, Peter Daszak and the Wuhan lab, that mm -hmm. that is potentially problematic. And they on the unicorn example you just cited, they went to the Defense Department and said, please let us do research on how to get a horn on a horse. We really want to put a horn on a horse. Please let us. And the Defense Department said, we're not going to fund that. That seems dangerous for whatever reason. And then lo and behold, a horse with a horn started walking around Wuhan, China, right next to the very lab in which they wanted to do this very research. And the scientists say it's not unusual for scientists to go in and seek funding for something they actually already have underway. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if you looked at other research grants, again, I just want to emphasize to your to your audience that there is no evidence that U.S. 
you know, labs and, and scientists were involved in creating this, this virus. And, you know, the, the horn on the, on the horse, the unicorn analogy, I mean, it really falls apart really quickly when you, when you, you know, think, okay, it's just one, you know, this is a white horse, but there are black horses and brown horses and, you know, other, a lot of other, you know, kinds of horses and, you know, donkeys and things like that, that have the furin cleavage site. So it's really not a, you know, it's really not the smoking gun for the, you know, for the lab leak proponents. In fact, mm. you know, it, if you really look closely at the at the site and you know how how viruses acquire these furin cleavage sites, you can see that it's just been a perfectly natural process as to how SARS-CoV-2 got this this, hmm. this furin cleavage. Well, why why did you originally think that it was likely from the lab? Because we've seen in your correspondence with Fauci and Collins that you initially took a look at this along with other virologists and experts and said um, things mm-hmm. like, "I can't think of a plausible natural scenario." That was February second, twenty twenty where you get a bat virus or one very similar to it, um, where you insert exactly these amino acids and nucleotides that all have to be added and so on. And then you said, um, I I just can't figure out how this gets accomplished in nature. And then two days later, uh, well, then you spoke to Anthony Fauci and uh, Francis Collins. And then within days, you completely reversed yourself and did a 180 and said it's lab. it, It can't possibly be lab leak. It is nature. Yeah. So let me correct that a little bit. I mean, that that was one email that, you know, I'd sent to, uh, you know, some of my colleagues that were looking at this one email out of hundreds of emails and, and, you know, different kinds of Zoom calls and things like this, where we're discussing, you know, the possibilities about where this, you know, where this virus might have come from. And, and, you know, my, my, my colleagues and I, who wrote that paper in Nature Medicine, you know, when we, took on this, you know, sort of trying to figure out where it had come from, you know, we, we told ourselves we need to be agnostic about all the different possibilities. We not, need to not let, you know, some of our priors and some of our, you know, previous experience, you know, really um, bias us. And, you know, if we would have come up with, you know, data and evidence that the virus had leaked from the lab, we would have been the first ones out there saying, you know, this virus leaked from the lab. So so that one email that you just read is, like I said, hundreds of emails. I actually wrote it, uh, you know, in, in the evening. I was at a Mardi Gras ball here. I'm in New Orleans, right? So, you know, I was typing on my iPhone there and, you know, just got this question, you know, you know, what, what's the what's the evidence that, you know, this, this, um, you know, if you're in cleavage side is natural or not. And that's what I typed out. But, you know, as I, you know, got further in, into the, you know, the whole genome and looking at the virus, it, it came com- clear pretty quickly that, you know, this virus, you know, all these features that we were looking at were, were perfectly natural. So, you know, I, you know, there were some other people that I was dealing with, you know, you've heard the names Christian Anderson and Eddie Holmes and a few others, Andrew Rambo, that, you know, may have been a little bit more uh, open to the, uh, the lab hypothesis early on until they started looking at it. Uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, always more of the, you know, on the, yeah, this is natural, you know, and I'm going to have to find something really, you know, unusual to make me think that it's going to be a, a but lab. Forgive me, so wasn't like it I just said, days, wasn't it just two days later that you reversed yourself and said, uh, actually, no, okay. I forget what I said about it coming from a lab. I now say it's natural. It, it wasn't really a, ver- a reversal. I mean, it's, it's what scientists do. You know, we kick around ideas, you know, we have, you know, private conversations sometimes you're playing devil's advocate i mean that's pretty much mm-hmm. what i was doing in that in that one email you, you know, well what, what happened in those 48 hours what changed what what did you see 
Well, you looked at the genomes of the viruses more closely. I mean, in fact, at that time, too, there was another you know, piece of data that came out, you know, the famous pangolin coronavirus, right? And uh, this, this virus, uh, when we looked at the genome of that, and it happened all in that time frame, you know, there's another site besides the Cure and Cleavage site that, that we were focusing in on. It's called the receptor binding domain. And, and that receptor binding domain also, you know, was causing us a little bit of, uh, you know, head scratching, you know, where did that come from? Because it was like, unlike any other, um, you know, receptor binding domain that we'd seen in, um, in any coronavirus anywhere. But, you know, that what made the pangolin coronavirus so significant was, is that it's, RBD or receptor binding domain, this little fragment of the spike protein that helps the virus attach to the cell, um, was very similar to what was the RBD, the receptor binding domain in SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, that pangolin coronavirus was a natural virus. We knew that for sure. It wasn't a fake virus somebody just put on onto the you know, onto a website. Prove, how does that prove so, anything about the about SARS-CoV two? How how do you? I can see why maybe you say, all right, yeah. that requires further study. How it do you was, in forty eight hours very, come out and, and publish a paper similar. saying this is natural? I mean, because that what happened. The thing that bothered me when I saw all this go down was why didn't all these experts? Because it's very suspicious. Talk to Fauci. Talk to Cal- Collins, who are on record as not wanting this to be a lab leak theory as, as saying this would be very damaging if that's what comes out. <laughs> and then suddenly yeah. all these virologists reverse themselves. And mm-hmm. it, it's one thing if you can say, Megan, let me show you what I saw that proved to me it came. We found the pangolin. You know, that's why I'd yeah. say, gotcha. I get it. But there's Wait. nothing that proved this thing came from natural from nature in those 48 hours. Nothing. What happened well, was there. Well, you know, I mean, we, we saw that the receptor binding domain was natural, you know, because it was in the pangolin. And, you know, if you find that site, you know, as a natural thing, then, you know, it's logical to make the, you know, to go to the next step and say, well, the whole thing is natural. And, and you know, let, let me step back to something that you just said about uh, doctors Fauci and Collins. They were agnostic about it, too. I mean, I, I you know, I never got That's any not impression true. from either That's one not of true. them that because we uh, well, have their writings. I mean, just I, mean talking, you can, but, I forgive me because you can tell me what your conversations were. With I'm, them. I'm just telling you what you know my that. impression was. You know, you can you can come to a different conclusion. But, you know, they, they didn't, you know, try to influence us when we wrote the nature paper or nature medicine paper or, you know, even, you know, tell us, oh, you've got to write it this way or any way like that. They were they were completely hands off on that. You know, they 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 had just what what that conference was about, really, that teleconference on February one that, you know, there's been so much air about it, you know, and a lot of speculation, and everything. I mean, really, what what happened was, you know, a lot of virologists were called together by um, by Jeremy Farrar. He um, is, uh, you know, the head of the Welcome Trust in the UK. And, uh, you know, he called his friend Tony Fauci and Fauci uh, also got, you know, his boss on there, Francis Collins from the NIH. And, you know, and a bunch of other virologists that, you know, had expertise in how viruses emerge. And, uh, you know, this is, I think, perfectly natural. This is what you want people that are, you know, advising, you know, the, the president of the United States and Congress and, and also, you know, the, you know, the, the parliament in, in the UK. You want these people to get the best information that they possibly can. Okay, but let let me jump in. Let me jump in. I I accept all that. But let me, this guy Farrar, he's a Brit. He is the one 
who initially sent an email to Fauci and Collins expressing support for the lab leak theory, citing you, among others, saying Robert Gary, quote, cannot think of a possible natural scenario, um, saying he, quote, uh, this other guy, Farzan, he says he was bothered by the fear insight and having a hard time explaining it outside the lab, saying Farzan favored the lab leak over natural origin, 70 to 30 or 60, 40. And then Farrar, um, he wrote a book, actually, saying two other experts advising uh, Fauci and Collins were strongly in the lab leak camp. Christiana Anderson, who I know you've worked with and gotten research grants with, um, he put the lab leak theory at 60 to 70 percent. Eddie Holmes of Sydney put it at 80 percent and so on. And so mm-hmm. this is all the information going into Fauci and Collins, all of these top yeah, experts, but, including you know, yourself. But saying we changed looks their good. mind. And, and, and I got it. You, I got it. I got it. You, got, you, you change your mind in 48 works, hours, right? in 48 hours. And what we do know, and I, don't, I understand Collins may not have said it to you, according to you, but he is on record as saying we must, quote, put down this very destructive conspiracy theory, meaning the lab leak. So he didn't sound exactly open minded to a general search. Let let me put that uh, quote in a little bit more context. I mean, and I I remember this. It's not, you know, it's not well discussed, but, you know, there was actually a preprint that came out right around that time, right before that teleconference that said that basically um, this SARS-CoV-2 was a hybrid or a chimera between, you know, some coronavirus and HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And that that preprint was making a lot of, you know, rounds in the media and people were touting it. Oh, this is like the smoking gun. This virus came from a lab and they engineered it. They combined the most dangerous parts of uh, HIV, including that furin cleavage site into SARS-CoV-2. And, and this is, is really what I think, you know, Dr. Collins's quote is, is really addressing those, those dangerous conspiracy theories uh, about, you know, the, the virus having been engineered and possibly, you know, put together with uh with hiv i i don't mm-hmm. think he was making like general you know comments or anything like that no we i don't think you're this. correct he he went on to say first of all wondering if there's something nih can do to help put down this very destructive conspiracy with what seems to be growing momentum with a link to a segment done by my old pal brett bear at fox news about sources being increasingly confident that the coronavirus outbreak started in the Wuhan lab. Then he goes on to say, I hope that na- that the Nature Medicine article that you participated in after the 48 hour shift on the genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 would settle this, but probably didn't get much visibility. Anything more we can do? Ask the National Academy to weigh in. He clearly wanted this to go away. Then Fauci chimes in. It's a shiny object. It will go away in times. I wouldn't do anything about it right now. I mean, to suggest this is all about an AIDS concern is belied by their own writings. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a spokesman for the NIH or anybody like that. You know, I, I, I think uh, our evidence, you know, at the time we published that, I think that quote you're talking from is in April. I mean, most of the scientists that had looked at it by that time were saying, yeah, we've got to dismiss all these conspiracy theories about the virus having been engineered at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's just there's mm-hmm. no evidence for it. Well, okay. I mean, that's my point is that that's what Fauci and Collins were saying. Let's get rid of this theory about what was happening at the lab, that this came from a lab. I mean, the science was very clear then. It's very clear now. I mean, the virus, you know, they they didn't have, you know, a virus like SARS-CoV-2 at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They didn't stick a furin cleavage site in it. You You don't know that. You absolutely do not know know that. that, Actually, I mean, you know, based on all the science and the evidence that we've gathered, I mean, you know, it's just extremely unlikely that they had anything close. Well, that's different than no, that's it. Now you're now you're you're admitting that you're just positing this extremely unlikely is different from I know she didn't do it. There was there was. (laughs) 
bat coronavirus gain of function research going on. Well, do you do you deny that there was bat coronavirus gain of function research going on in the Wuhan lab between this woman who is referred to as the bat lady and uh, Eco Health Alliance? I mean, there was research being done, but there was no research being done on a virus that could have been converted into SARS-CoV-2. They, okay. they didn't have the backbone. They didn't have anything close that was, you know, 99.9%. Have you seen what they, did, what they had? Because we've asked the Chinese repeatedly, including from the start, and they didn't provide it. So how do you know? I mean, they would have published on it before. I mean, you know, and you, you can't find, it's hard to find in nature. So, you know, how did they get it? And, and there's another thing. Well, how do you uh, know they would have published that? What if they, what if they were doing it nefariously? They wouldn't have published on it. That's a possibility. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're diving into conspiracy theories there, you know, no, it's they, not they a conspiracy theory. It's a question. Didn't... It's a question. You can't dismiss a legitimate question by labeling but, it a okay, conspiracy it's not, it's theory. A, That's a tactic. You know, you That's not science. You would have to postulate that there were all these people working like Dayzak and and, uh, you know, the University of North Carolina scientists and the people from uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you know, the most elite coronavirus virologist in the world that somehow or other they got together and said, OK, we're going to cover up the fact all this time, you know, three years now almost that we, that we were working on the virus and, you know, and that we had engineered it. I mean, I, you know, that sounds to me like a conspiracy. Now, you know, if it's if you don't want to call it conspiracy theory, I guess that's okay, why is but- it not possible that they were working on it in a low security lab? You would con- concede that level two lab where something like that should not have been worked on. And then they had a oh you know what moment when it got out and an, yeah. and an international I, I mean, pandemic I, 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 was I begun. have to reject the you know the idea that that people like uh, Peter Dayzak and uh, Ralph Barrick were involved in some conspiracy with uh, Zingli Shi at the at the Wuhan Institute of Virology to create SARS-CoV-2. It, it just did not happen that way. I know there are a lot Again, of people. Again, you're setting us a straw man. You, you do better if you would strong man my argument than straw man it. I'm not saying that they had a conspiracy <laughs> to create this particular virus. I'm saying they were doing back coronavirus research, gain of function right. research that was very dangerous and it was not properly supervised in, in a lab with adequate, adequate security, which is what has led many of us to think something went wrong. Right. But but they would have had to, you know, they would have had a had to have a virus that was close to SARS-CoV-2 there. Now, I'm going to tell you something here. And, you know, the virus didn't emerge directly from a bat to a person. OK, it had to right. go through an intermediate animal. It had to enter right. some other mammal besides a bat in order to evolve into SARS-CoV-2. And the people at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they were working on bat coronaviruses. And so, you know, that's a that's a whole different thing. And that's another piece of data, another piece of evidence that, you know, they didn't engineer this virus. Well, and, no, and but they had they had mice with humanized lungs. And they were using those mice to test how contagious they could make this, how they could improve the efficiency of the contagion. That's not true. They didn't have mice with humanized lungs. Yeah. And those those mice are available. You know, ACE2 mice, they're they're available all over. A lot of people do work on those those kind of mice. So why are we pretending that there wasn't a way of making now that, you know, we've got a a pandemic coronavirus that uses that for a receptor? Yeah, and I'm just saying, of course, this is what people think that 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 there is there absolutely was a way of making Mm -hmm. the coronavirus more dangerous and more or more contagious in this lab. And if it happened uh, in the the natural origin, where's the intermittent intermediate animal? Where's the original animal? Where is even one pangolin? 
There's not one with over 80,000 <laughs> right. animals well, tested. Well, it wasn't a pangolin, but, you know, we do have evidence. And, you know, we published these two peer-reviewed papers in Science Magazine, you know, several months ago. That, you know, they went through a lot of strident peer review. And we showed, I think, conclusively, I mean, you can pick your modifier. It's dispositive. It's definitive. You know, I mean, the language that we used in the paper was pretty direct. I mean, we showed that the Hanan market, and we haven't mentioned that word before, but this wildlife market in the city of Wuhan was, you know, the epicenter of the outbreak. I mean, all the early cases were that it was uh, that it may have been the epicenter of the outbreak doesn't prove that that was the source, that that was the original source of the outbreak. Well, moreover, there, there's other data moreover, too. well, here's the second point. Moreover, uh, my understanding is y- you guys, many people had the theory that this is where it began, the Wuhan market. And therefore, that's where all the testing was done in the hospitals around the Wuhan market in order to support your own theories, as opposed to casting a wide net to figure out where else it might have shown up. Yeah, it's it's called the Hanan market. It's the South China, uh, you know, seafood yeah, and know. wildlife market there. And it was one of only four places in the city of Wuhan, this, you know, this mega city, you know, 11 million people there that uh, one of only four places that sold wildlife that are susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, this is where, um, you know, where all the early cases were centered, you know, and, you know, it, it's not ascertainment bias or anything like that. You'll, you'll probably hear that, you know, a little bit later on, I'm guessing, you know, but, you know, this was actually a study that was done, you know, after the, you know, after the outbreak had started, they looked at all the different cases, uh, you know, across the whole city of Wuhan, these 11 million people and identified, you know, uh, cases of SARS-CoV-2 in December of 2019. Okay, so about 170 cases or so. Um, And it turns out that, you know, we, we were able to look at that data and show that those cases were centered, you know, not just in any place in this, this large city of over 500 square miles, but in a very tiny area that included, you know, at its very center, the Hanan seafood market. So, and this included people, and this is important. So when you talk you know, about ascertainment bias about these cases. It included not only the cases that were epidemiologically or, you know, by, you know, contacts linked to the Hanan market, but also cases that were not linked, that, that the epidemiologists couldn't find any link at all. And it turns out that those cases too, you know, without the, uh, you know, the link to the market were also, you know, very close in that same community uh, around that the Hanan seafood market. So what, what happened is, is the virus spilled over, you know, from the wildlife trade in that market. And it didn't happen just once. It happened twice because there are two different lineages of the virus, which is okay. a whole nother piece of evidence. But, but here's that, the you know, question that here, here's the question lay people are asking. Where's the yeah. animal? Show us one. One. Show us Where, one. Where's the animal? You know, I mean, it, it, the, the data that we looked at and that we published in our science papers goes even deeper. You know, when they closed down that market and they closed it down on January 1st, they took environmental samples from the market. Now, all the wild animals had already been cleared out of the market, right? But there were still environmental swabs and things that they took. And they took them from, you know, from around the, the different parts of the market. And when those environmental samples were tested for the presence of the virus, they, most of the, uh, those, those samples ended up being clustered in one particular area of the market, the southwest mm-hmm. corner. Well, it turns out that the southwest corner was where they were selling these wild animals that are susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. But the so, truth is, you know, Dr. Again, Gary, let, let, me add, but let me follow up. There's, the truth is you, you don't know that those samples 
originated with animals as opposed to infected humans? Well, you know, technically you're correct about that, but I'll tell you the samples that were positive came from a, a places in the market where they were selling the wild animals. One okay, of the samples came I mean, from like, an it's, it's iron not a... cage that they kept the animals in. The sewer out in front of that that stall where they were selling the wild animals turned out later to be positive for SARS-CoV-2. So it's all in this just one tiny corner of this market that, it, you know, the, the west side of uh, of the market that's about the size of a, you know, a U.S. football field, maybe okay. more like a. So you don't find it odd we haven't field. found a single animal that would be the source or the intermediary. No, I don't find it odd. I, I you know, I this is, and there's reasons for that. I mean, scientific reasons why I think that it's been difficult. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, they they cleared all the animals out of the market. So you know, I mean, call me a conspiracy theorist if you want, but I I think that you know the the Chinese government didn't want us linking. The, the virus to the wildlife trade, because that's how the first SARS started, right? I mean, that, you know, it started from spillover, you know, and multiple spillovers from from wild animals back in 2002 to 2004. Okay, okay. I, I accept that the Chinese so, had you know, they cleared the market of those wild animals out. And, and then, you know, okay, so the animals are gone. And, you know, and then, you know, we, we have not been able to get any data or information from, uh, you know, the Chinese authorities there, you know, about look, what Okay, I get it. But but don't the Chinese have more of a reason to say it came from an animal than they do to say it came from the Wuhan lab? I mean, I don't think so, because the Chinese I mean, let's let's be clear. When the virus emerged in Wuhan, the scientists did not share their database of the wildlife pathogens with the public or even with their American collaborators. They didn't do it. This has been created it, precisely to help scientists in the event yeah. of this kind of an outbreak. So why, when the pandemic finally hit, did they not share it? Why why wouldn't we know where, where these viruses were and how they were kept in their database that they would, yeah. and why have they been shared with the public? Why? Like, doesn't that cause you some, now, some concern? I, I, you know, I think that's just another part of, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories. I mean, this Stop saying that. It's a question. Tell me, what would be the non-conspiracy theorist reason for them not to share the the data with us? Well, what they said was, is that they were going to try to modernize it and make it more accessible to, uh, you know, to other scientists. It was basically an Excel spreadsheet. Well, we're three years into this now. Where's the new pamphlet? So they could update it. And then, you know, they got all the flack about it. And they just said, we're not going to that. I see. Huh? So now they're now they're being spiteful because they were going to do yeah. it, according to you. Originally, <laughs> three years later, they're just kicked off. And so they won't. OK, do you yeah. do you agree um, that it this would have easily escaped from a lab that only had BSL-2 or BSL-3 security on it? If they were working on a virus like this, those levels of security are too low. Uh, you know, I, I I agree that you know we should change those those rules and and work on some of these you know wilder wild coronaviruses, wild caught coronaviruses at BSL three. I mean, I'm I'm a virologist. I mean, my my safety, my you know my personal safety and the safety of my students depends on having good biosafety and biosecurity. So we're not opposed to that. I mean, you know, the rules are are not written down very well, but you know, it's a separate conversation that we need to have. I mean, just just because you know you you think there might have been unsafe conditions there at the at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and I don't think that there were. I think that they were operating at a at a at a very high level. Does doesn't mean that the virus leaked from there. That's that's an entirely different different question, and it should no, be. No, but a my separate... my problem is not. I'm not saying it does mean that. I'm saying 
I'm concerned about your lack of curiosity and the lack of curiosity of others like you who originally said this looks like a lab <laughs> leak. And then 48 you know, hours after speaking with Fauci and Collins did a 180. And it wasn't just you. You mentioned but, some of the others. Uh, Sir Farrar, yeah, yeah. who not only reversed himself, but started calling people racist for saying it was a lab <laughs> leak. I, that's that's what concerns me. The absence of curiosity and open mindedness yeah, to a full throated investigation. Say, I, I've been, you know, I've been doing a lot of other things in my my career, looking at other viruses besides SARS-CoV-2, but there have been very few other people, uh, you know, besides me that have not been looking at this question so intently, you know, for, for three years. And I can assure you, if we had found any scintilla of evidence that the virus had leaked from the lab, we'd be out there, you know, sharing it with people and showing that, you know, okay, that's, that's happened. But, you know, there's no scientific evidence. There's mm -hmm. nothing. <laughs> that, that, Let me that ask you this. You said earlier things, that, that you did not feel... You yeah. said earlier you did not feel pressured by Fauci or Collins to reverse your opinion from lab leak to natural origins. Did you have a yeah. conversation in which they expressed, either one of them expressed, that they thought this would be harmful to the scientific community if it looked like a lab leak? Never, Never once. Ne neither one ever said that or suggested that in any way, shape or form to you? No. Were, did anybody suggest to you that that was how they felt? I, I never heard it until I saw it on the news there and I, you know. Didn't think so none of your fellow scientists told you that, like Fauci and Collins and or Collins or anybody at the NIH. No, nobody put any good. pressure on us at all. No, absolutely well, I, that's not, not what we, I asked. Yeah. Well, I, I, whatever your answer is, I, there, we didn't hear anything from 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 Fauci or Collins that you know said, OK, it's going to hurt a national relations or anything like that. Nothing. Totally. OK, but are you familiar with those? I mean, you, you know now that they've, they've said that publicly in college. I mean, we so published I mean, that paper in March of 2020. I think that quote that you that you read was from Collins sometime in April. That was the first time I heard about it. I'm not sure if it was The New York Times or where it was, but, you know, or or maybe it was when the uh, maybe it even was later, I, you know. But I, never I mean, it, it wasn't just them. It was some of your collaborators. It was uh, Collins saying we've got to tamp down the, the very destructive conspiracy about the lab leak theory. Otherwise, it would do great potential harm to science and international harmony. Then there was um, Dr. Ron Fauchier, whose group in the Netherlands researches how to make animal viruses more dangerous, who said in an email, further debate about such accusations around the lab leak theory would unnecessarily distract top researchers from their active duties and do unnecessary harm to science in general and science in China in particular, China, which is America's biggest and most important collaborator in scientific research. This is why yeah. people believe that they're everyone, you, Fauci, Collins, Fauchier, all these people understood it is not good if we start pointing a finger at that Wuhan lab. Megan, it wasn't me. I didn't say that. I mean, I'm I'm not not a particular fan of the the Chinese government. I I think that they should be more open about you know these early cases and you know where the animals came from and and a lot of other things. Uh, uh, and so you know, don't don't quote me on that. I never I never said that. I I can't speak. Well, for these you did other say people. you thought it was natural. You you did not think it was natural origin. You couldn't figure out how it was. That that that's from you. I said that in one email. I mean, you know, that was like, you know, amongst thousands. You, what of do you mean? Things. So did you did you lie in that email? Is that how you felt or isn't it? <laughs> no, I didn't lie. I mean, yeah, this is how scientists, you know, um, work things out. You know, you sometimes you take one side of the argument and sometimes you take the other side. And, you know, that that's what we were doing. And, and that that's an, another reason why, you know, when we had this, you know, February one teleconference that, you know, 
I think the NIH feels it's important to keep those confidential discussions private because, you know, people can cherry pick and that's what's happened. They cherry picked that one email from me and, you know, said, okay, he's a lab leaker and he always was, and he changed his mind in 24 hours and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's just not, doesn't reflect what the actual discussions that were going on were, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I, you I must say, though, it wasn't just cherry picked. As I pointed right? out, Sir Farrar wrote a whole book quote, telling us w- what your positions were. So it's not just like some <laughs> nefarious character got a hold of some notes. Like the whole books have been written about it. Like <laughs> your colleagues are on the records on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, some of the people that you mentioned that kind of can be considered the original lab leakers. And we included the lab leak hypothesis in our Nature Medicine article. I mean, if you if you carefully read it, uh, it's not even you don't have to carefully read it. It's right there. I, I we read considered it. it. You know, we considered it, but, you know, uh, we had to look at the scientific evidence and there is no scientific evidence that the virus leaked from that lab. Um, OK, here's the here's the final thing I want to ask you about. Um, OK. You and another one of the early lab leaks. I haven't convinced you yet, have I? No, you haven't. But I appreciate you coming on and being so (laughs) honest. I mean, I give you credit, Dr. Gary, because nobody else is willing to do this. And so just the fact that you're willing to sit here and take these tough questions makes me think more of you, makes me understand better your position. I've I've had tougher questions before. (laughs) I'm sure you have. I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm doing the best I can. And so I appreciate you (laughs) giving me the time um, and my audience the time. I give you credit for that, too. But here's the thing that you know, that also got a lot of attention that you and this Christian Anderson, Anderson, who was also born in the lab leak, say again, Christian, Christian, Christian. Okay. Sorry. Christian Anderson, you guys were both more in the lab leak theory originally and then reversed yourselves. Christian. Yes. Not me. (laughs) Well, whatever the record stands, it speaks for itself. Um, and then within a couple of months in August of 2020, um, you guys received an $8.9 million grant from Fauci to study emerging infectious diseases. And Fauci is the guy who controls the purse strings when it comes to these federal grants on research. And this is why everyone in your community is so beholden to him. So do you deny that you felt some some pressure to make Fauci happy? Uh, yeah, I do deny it. I mean, and, and let me tell you, yes, the grant was finally awarded in August. But, you know, that grant was written in the middle of 2019. And it was reviewed, you know, by, you know, peer review. So you knew it was under consideration when you had the conversations with him about lab leak theory. Tell me, I didn't quite catch the first word. You're saying it wasn't granted until later, but you had applied earlier. So what you're telling me is that when you had the conversation with Fauci about your belief, it was a lab leak theory initially, your grant was under consideration. Nope. It was already, it had already been awarded, you know, and so. I thought you you got it in August of 2020. What happened in August, 2020? I mean, you know, it takes a long time for him to set up all these contracts and everything like that. And, you know, Dr. Fauci doesn't review these grants and he doesn't decide which grant is going to be funded and not funded. Either this Francis Collins. No, they don't. You know, you're suggesting that Dr. Fauci couldn't stop it if he if he wanted it. If he wanted to stop it, he could have. He's done it before. It'd actually probably be hard for him to do it. There are people that could stop it, but I'm not sure that Dr. Fauci could actually stop it. There are others that could, but but not him. But, you know, it I mean, it's peer review. I mean, you know, we competed against a bunch of other very, you know, good scientists and groups and things like that, wrote a good proposal. 
and you know the study section liked it and you know it was reviewed by the scientific council of the nih which is another independent group of scientists and they said yes award this grant yeah, and I'm, happy, I'm not you know, saying it's a bad anybody knew about SARS-CoV-2 so it wasn't a, it wasn't as some people have said a you know, uh, and the name of the the, the project is uh, the whole program is called Creed Centers for Research in Emerging Infectious Diseases. It wasn't a Creed pro quo or anything like that. That's just insulting, and and the people that you know have made those accusations know that that's not true. They're just you know throwing out you know whatever they think might might stick on the wall. And it it didn't happen that way. Dr. Robert Gary, you're a stand-up guy for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you for the robust okay. back and forth. Okay. All right, sure enough. Coming up. <laughs> Dr. Alina Chan, who has been watching this entire interview and is ready to respond. Don't go away. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com. Megan. Now, Dr. Alina Chan, a molecular biologist and scientific advisor at MIT and Harvard who co-wrote Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, a book that explains why she says the science points to COVID originating in the Wuhan lab. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I, I know you were listening to my uh, exchange with Dr. Gary. And um, well, let me just start with this. What did you make of it? What did you think of it? I, I wish that we had been able to talk face to face because there's so many things I would have liked to put to him. Um, we wanted that, that but that, that, that was not into. acceptable. Yeah. yeah. What did you make of his assertion? I mean, number one, he was saying that the um, this type of virus has been seen. He conceded not in SARS type coronaviruses. Never before was there this urine cleavage site, which, again, has been described by some as the smoking gun that tells us it came from um, a man in a lab or a woman. Um, he says, OK, maybe not in the SARS type coronaviruses, but these do occur in nature and that we we have seen uh, this type of thing appear in other type of coronaviruses. So the first thing I'll say is that without this cleavage site, without this feature, this virus would never have caused a pandemic. So without this feature, it is completely weak. It's very not transmissible and, and not very deadly. So the problem is that you have scientists in this one lab in, in Wuhan, who in 2018 said, we're going to put these types of features into SARS-like viruses. And boom, two years later, such a virus shows up in their city. So it's a very striking coincidence. Uh, and the problem is that uh, when people say there's no evidence they did that, that's because the evidence exists in lab records, emails and documents, things that we don't have access to and things we should be investigating. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful that next year there will be an actual investigation where these documents are obtained from the U.S. collaborators and the EcoHealth Alliance that can shed light on whether or not it happened and whether or not the virus came from that lab. 
Mm-hmm. What did you make of the reversal of all those scientists in 48 hours? They, they all came out initially and had this conference call saying it looks like it came from a lab, cannot figure out how this could have been natural. And his explanation, which is the first time he's said it publicly about what changed his mind in the 48 hours. So I, I think this paper, this Nature Medicine uh, Proximal Origin Letter, uh, is a case study in lack of transparency in scientific publishing. So they they did not acknowledge that their scientific funders had been involved. They didn't say that, hey, we had this phone call, Farrar, Fauci, you know, Collins were on it. And there was this long discussion with multiple other scientists and, and we, we ruled out a lab leak. So they didn't acknowledge their involvement. And yet, uh, months later, when Dr. Fauci was telling the media that this couldn't have come from a lab, he just whipped out this paper and said, hey, look at this paper. Independent scientists said it couldn't have come from a lab. So this this is not very transparent. Mm-hmm. He claims that in that 48 hours, the aha moment was looking at the virus appearing in another. Forgive me. I think he was talking about another pangolin coronavirus thing that had a similar. I don't know if it's exactly a furin cleavage site, but something where he was like, ah, you see, it has occurred. And that was the game changing moment. Uh, yeah. So I was listening to that exchange and, and he is I think his stance is quite scientifically naive. So he, he said that from looking at the pangolin coronavirus, which has no furin cleavage site or any sign of intermediate in that site, he, he changed his mind. He, he said, because parts of that virus look similar to the pandemic virus, we can assume that the rest of the pandemic virus is natural too. So how can you make that assumption? That that, that doesn't make any sense from a logical point of view. So I, I don't accept this. I don't accept this excuse that they looked mm-hmm. at the pangolin virus and within 48 hours, they changed their minds. They could not dismiss the most concerning feature to them, which was the furin cleavage site. What did you make of, uh, you know, he he says that he did not feel pressured or was not told and was not told by Fauci or Collins would be very helpful if you would reverse your original position. Um, it to me, it just remains very suspicious that they all did, that they were all very strongly. I mean, we're talking about 80, 90 percent uh, people on uh, people saying that their position is 80 percent sure this could not have come from an animal. Um, and then suddenly a 180 to the point where not only were they saying, actually, it did come from an animal, but and you're racist to suggest it didn't. I mean, a real reversal to me, that's very suspicious. But what do you think? So this is one reason why scientific journals say that scientists, when you write letters and you publish articles, you have to tell us if your funders were involved. You have to declare it. But these guys did not declare that their funders were involved. So they were receiving funding from NIH, from NIAID, from the Wellcome Trust, and they did not declare that the leaders of these funding agencies were involved in their manuscripts. They had sent these mm-hmm. manuscripts to them, uh, drafts of it, to, to get their advice. They thanked them in emails for their leadership and advice. Uh, and again, the, the paper was cited to the media by these leaders as if they had no involvement in it. So this this is not transparent. Um, and I think it is actually very anti-scientific to come up with a letter and say, case closed, no need to investigate. We, the scientists, the virologists have decided for everyone that a lab leak cannot happen and, and we don't need to look into it. Yeah. And then, as I pointed out to the doctor, you have you have Collins on the record saying, I really hope this nature medicine piece would put an end to this. But the speculation goes on. What more should we do? And Fauci saying, oh, it's a shiny object. It's going to go away. The lab leak discussions after that Brett Baer segment that that Collins was circulating around. So, I mean, it's very clear that they did have a plan, whether, you know, Dr. Gary knew about it is something the viewers can decide. But and he denies it. But uh, it's very clear that Fauci and Collins were working together to do everything within their power to tamp down the discussion about a lab leak. Um, I'll ask you right after this quick break because uh, Alina stays with us, um, but I got to get a break at the end, the end of the hour. I'll ask you whether, um, wh- why, why were Fauci and Collins so determined 
to get people off of the lab leak theory uh, position they seem to be in to this day. Uh, Pick it up right there, right after this. Alina, thank you for being with us. Stand by. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. Let me pick up where I left off and ask you why you think Collins and Fauci were so determined to have the public narrative be natural origins. I want to make two points. So the first is that the science has been clear since day one, since early 2020 until today, is that there's no definitive, no direct evidence for either a natural or a lab origin. Although in my view, in my scientific opinion, I I think that the circumstantial evidence that exists, it points towards a lab origin. And this is why we need to investigate both. And the second point I want to make is that as this pandemic has gone on, the states have gotten higher and higher with the death toll and the impact on the economy. So at the beginning, you know, it infected a few dozen people in Wuhan, but now we're talking about millions of people dead. And and I think that scientists, journalists, and investigators are rightly worried that if they dig too deep on this issue, they might find out that this pandemic came from research activities. So research that was a collaboration between the US and China and, and thus implicating a whole coalition of scientists across the world who are engaged in this type of risky research. Uh, and it's so much easier to point the finger at the nameless, voiceless market trader in Wuhan and say that the guy with the raccoon dogs did it and and he can't defend himself. And that way Mm. you don't actually blame anyone. You don't need to blame anyone for this pandemic. You don't need to do anything to prevent a future pandemic. And and this is the real problem is that by failing to investigate how this pandemic started, we we have left the door wide open for more of this high-risk virology research to, to continue. Although it's such a tiny fraction of virology, it has outsized consequences for humanity. Yeah, well said. Exactly right. And yet we just granted Fauci just granted Peter Daszak's group another multimillion dollar grant to continue gain of function research. It's incredible to me, doctor. That is very shocking. So when I when I saw that news, I was thinking to myself, what have they done to investigate to make sure that the research they funded that they funded through the EcoHealth Alliance didn't result in this pandemic? And what changes have they made? How have they made the research safer, more accountable, and more transparent? I I have no idea. So we're just pouring more money into the type of activity that could start pandemics. Yeah, because Dr. Gary kept saying, oh, you know, there's no proof they engineered this in this this lab. Yes, some people think this was an intentional act, but I think the vast majority of people who are thinking lab leak don't think this was intentional. They think that they were doing gain of function research uh, in that Wuhan lab on bat coronaviruses to see how dangerous we could make them and how we, we might combat them. And that something went wrong, that there was a low level security in this lab. Something went wrong. And while they didn't try to engineer this pandemic, that wound up being the consequence. Yes, I, I actually have a very charitable view of the research happening in that lab. So I, I don't believe that they were intentionally trying to make 
pandemic pathogens. They they tried to do their work in very weak viruses, but I think by accident, they might have put in a pandemic feature that made all these weak viruses capable of starting a human pandemic. And the issue here is that they were doing a lot of this work in the years leading up to the pandemic at a very low biosafety level. So you had asked Bob Gary, uh, was it appropriate for them to do this type of research at BSL2. And, and Bob said he thought it was a high enough level of biosafety. That is just not true. So you cannot be working with novel SARS-like viruses at BSL2. If you do this for several years and you're working with hundreds of these SARS-like viruses, one day you're going to get unlucky. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So what, what about his point? He was saying all the cases originated around the um, Hunan market and that, that in that market they found traces of the coronavirus in this particular like section where the animals were kept? There, there are a few facts that need to be pointed out about this market. So the first thing is that this market is the size of about 10 NFL stadiums. Okay, 10 NFL stadiums, the retail space in that market. And it's located in one of the most densely populated districts in, in Wuhan City, where most of the elderly people live. It's located right next to the Wuhan CDC and several hospitals, key hospitals in that city. It's also located next to the most highly trafficked uh, metro train station in that city. So by the time the investigators went there, the entire market, 10 NFL stadiums, had been plastered with virus. So <laughs> they... Bob Gary says that he, he thinks that based on the available data, which is very little, he thinks that the, the there's evidence of contamination near the wildlife stores. But if you look at it closely, actually the, the washrooms and the, toilet, <laughs> the toilets in that market are, are right there. So uh, he he and his collaborators on this peer-reviewed peer science paper he's pointing to actually admit in the paper itself, we, hey, we don't have the data, but we're going to make a bunch of assumptions that support our belief that this came from the market. And we're going to tell everyone that we've, we've found the animal at this market. So I think mm -hmm. this, <laughs> those studies cannot stand if, if they were truly opened up for open peer review by, by other scientists. What, what do you make of his assertion? Because I said, where's the animal? Where's even one? You know, they tested 80,000 and they're not there. And he said the Chinese got rid of them, you know, in an effort to cover it up, that they didn't want the news narrative to be they came from a lab, which, you know, the, or sorry, from uh, from the Wuhan market. So I agree that China now has a stance that we that they don't want any any evidence at all that this virus originated in China is anywhere but cure stance. So they're, they're trying to blame it on lobsters from Maine. They're trying to blame it on cold <laughs> chain from Southeast Asia. Uh, they're trying to blame it on salmon from Faroe Islands, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, everyone who sees that knows it's a it's a farce, right? So, um, but what, what Bob Gary is saying is that in all of the years, even before the pandemic, the scientists who have been studying the wildlife and the bats all around that area and other parts of China have not been able to find any animals infected with SARS-2-like viruses, uh, except for pangolins far down in South China. They have not found any bats in the area that carry this type of viruses. And so he's saying that all of that evidence must have been covered up. <laughs> Either that or we have been exceedingly unlucky that suddenly a virus with this furin cleavage site just pops up, boom, and leaves no trace across the rest of China in the years leading up to or after the pandemic. So it, it requires a massive conspiracy across tons of scientists, wildlife traders, hospitals, like the government. So I, I, I think that that conspiracy is much, much, much less plausible than the, than the lab leak uh, theory. Well, let's talk about the lab leak theory now and explain to us why you believe, and I understand your initial point, which is there's no definitive evidence 
in either mm-hmm. camp. There's circumstantial evidence and people will draw their own conclusions, but it really is outrageous that we're not having an international open investigation into this with so many people dead. I mean, millions of people dead, 10 plus. Um, in any event, why do you believe that this came from a lab? So I think that the odds are extremely striking. So in the entire world, this was the only lab that was collecting all of these novel coronaviruses from not just bats, but wildlife in the wildlife train, from even people in the wildlife train. So they're actively collecting samples from people who reported illnesses, mysterious illnesses, and they worked on wildlife train, bringing all these samples up from Southeast Asia and China across eight countries up into Wuhan City. They had the ability to seamlessly uh, engineer these in the lab, genetically modify them in the lab, leaving no trace of detection. Uh, they also had this 2018 pipeline to put furin cleavage sites into SARS-like viruses. So there's only this one lab in the world doing this type of work at not safe conditions, so at a low biosafety condition. And two years later, this virus shows up in that city. So you have to investigate. Um, and their behavior has really not been very forthcoming. So these guys said, we're going to put horns on horses. A unicorn shows up in their city. And they describe everything about this unicorn except for the horn. And they don't tell anyone about their plans to put horns on horses until late last year. Someone finally leaked the document from the US government showing that these guys had this plan all this time. And none of them said a word, not even the US collaborators. All right, when you refer to the um, the plan, do you, are you referring to Peter Daszak's application to the defense, to the Pentagon, asking for funding to do exactly this kind of research, this kind of gain of function research on bat coronaviruses. Yes, and other top virologists have looked at this document too and said this could have plausibly led to the creation of the pandemic virus. So my question is, why aren't we investigating? Why aren't we asking the EcoHealth Alliance and other US collaborators on that grant? uh, What other research happened under this arm of work? Did you actually start doing this work? What were the communications that you got from your Wuhan partners? Okay, and what about the defense of, well, the the Pentagon rejected that. They they did not fund that. And so what makes you believe it took place? So this is another scientifically naive point that Bob Gary made. He said just because they didn't get the money, they couldn't do the work. Uh, That that is, I think, incorrect on so many levels because this lab in Wuhan was extremely highly funded. They had so much money pouring in that not getting one Fun, one grant from DAPA in the US would not have stopped them from doing any work, especially an idea that was very exciting, con- considered transgressive, most likely able to lead to a high impact publication. So, and a lot of scientists, when they write these grants, they've usually done some preliminary work already. And the wording in this grant was so specific. It said, we're going to look in all of the viruses we've collected to see if there are any types of rare cleavage sites. And we're going to put these into cells like viruses in the lab. So uh, I, I think that it is wishful thinking on, on Bob Garrett's part. He, he wishes that they had not done any of this work so that it could have just come from that market. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's really suspicious is the fact that this virus arrived in humans super efficient and great at being uh, at, at, at contagion. Great, great at it, passing from one to another. And that's very rare as I understand it, with these coronaviruses, SARS coronaviruses, the, the viruses typically take a long time to get this efficient, this this good. Um, and that's why, you know, I was asking him about the humanized mice in the lab, because that is how we understand they were doing it. They were using these humanized mice to make the virus more transmissible. So Gary and his uh, co-authors, they make some fairly outlandish 
assertions. They, they claim that they know that the precursor to the pandemic virus was never worked with in that lab. And my question is, how do you know? Did you have access to their database and you're not sharing with us? Like, yeah, I asked him that. There's a, I asked him that. There's, yeah, there's usually a lag of a few years. Some, some labs even work on uh, projects for 10 years before publishing. And we know that that Wuhan Institute of Virology had a very strict confidentiality protocol. Some of their thesis had to be locked for 20 years. So someone's Wait, PhD you heard his answer could... on that. You heard his answer. He, they, they were originally going to do it. You know, they're getting it together, but then they got ticked off and they were like, forget it. You're going to blame us. We're not you're not getting anything. I don't understand what he means by modernizing an Excel sheet. So I mean, <laughs> can't you just share the Excel sheet with your US collaborators? You know, the people who gave you millions of dollars over the years to, to build this database to predict pandemics. So this is another example where I feel like their behavior has been suspicious and not forthcoming, uh, illogical, really. Uh, and, and so it, it, it really is a, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so if you I could mean, comment on the, on the, on the mice and, and how we believe they were like, because there's a reason that we find its efficiency and contagion so suspicious, so mm -hmm. suspicious. Yeah. And, and Gary and his colleagues have also flip flopped on that point a lot. So first, in proximal origin, they said this virus is very well adapted for humans. And then when when I came out with the same idea, they attacked me saying she's she's wrong, she's not qualified to comment. And then this year in their preprint, they said the same thing again. They said it's well adapted. And that's why it caused such an explosion from two spillovers at the market. So they can't make up their minds. Uh, but for me, it, it's quite clear that uh, when a virus jumps from an animal to a human, it, it normally is not capable of causing a pandemic right away. It's it's like buying a lottery ticket. So if, if someone buys a lottery ticket for the first time in their life and they buy one lottery ticket and they win the lottery, that's kind of suspicious. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's very suspicious. <laughs> uh, normally for, for someone to win the lottery or for a virus to win the lottery, it has to try many times. It has to keep hitting, keep, keep infecting people, keep jumping until one day it gets quite lucky and it causes a chain of transmissions enough to, to adapt well and cause a large outbreak in humans. So what now, right? We, we've had our intelligence agencies take some sort of cursory look at this. The results were unsatisfying. Um, we've had the World Health Organization with Peter Daszak on the board go over there to try to get answers. Even 60 Minutes caught on to that and gave Peter Daszak a hard time and basically said this is not to be trusted. Um, wh like what now? Because as I mentioned to Dr. Gary, the U.S. and China are neck deep in collaborative research with one another. And as you point out, this is essentially the reason why our public health officials are so determined not to lift up the drape on this particular investigation and get real answers. So we're worried. We're worried about the next pandemic and low security labs and more money go to, going to Dazic. So I, I wish that at the beginning of this pandemic, the scientists would have, instead of calling a lab leak theory a conspiracy or racist conspiracy, conspiracy theory, I wish that they would have said, look, even, even the best scientists have accidents and we are all kind of responsible for this. And, and, and the responsible thing for scientists to do is to say, let's investigate and make sure this doesn't happen again. But that's not what happened. And so here we are three years later with no real investigation, with no credible investigation. That that study tour that the World Health Organization had in, in Wuhan last year was a desperate attempt to get data from the Chinese investigators. They did not get that data. So um, here we are. What can we do? 
I would say there is a lot we can do. There's data that exists here in the US that can be looked at that can actually tell us when did this start. So there might be sequences of the pandemic virus predating December 2019, and that has not been looked at. The the database owners have not allowed scientists to go in and look. We have not subpoenaed for, unfortunately, we have to subpoena for emails and documents between the Wuhan scientists and, and the US collaborators to see did they Gazette actually start EcoHealth? putting cleavage signs. Yes, the EcoHealth Alliance and their mm-hmm. other US collaborators. So th- there's so many things we can look into. But can but I just ask you, Alina, this is, this is yeah. so infuriating. We just gave EcoHealth and Peter Daszak s- several more million dollars. He got one por- portion of it now and he gets more later. Why can't Dr. Fauci just pick up the phone right now and say, give it all to me? <laughs> I don't know. I I suspect that, again, there might be this there might be this feeling amongst scientists, especially top scientists, that they don't want to know the answer. That yeah, they would rather have these two the science papers. They would rather have these two science papers try to close the case for the entire scientific community. Try to tell everyone, "Don't worry, we did the we did the analysis, and we are telling you this came from the market." They would rather that happen rather than investigate. And so you're exactly right that this this has led to continued funding, continued investment in this type of research that could start more pandemics and have a catastrophic effect on the rest of us. So more, more, more risk on the general population, you know, more, more vaccination programs, more lockdowns, potentially, it's it's just unthinkable that there's not been a proper investigation. That's the last question of the undermining in the public faith in our public health officials. It's been catastrophic catastrophic. It trickles down to vaccines and everything else coming out of the CDC and the NIH and Fauci's subgroup within the NIH. I mean, it's all connected to the unwillingness to be transparent and open and honest about how this thing got started. Am I wrong? So I I believe that in this pandemic, the vaccines and therapeutics have played an immense role in reducing human suffering. I myself have taken all the vaccines and boosters, but I think that the scientific community has a responsibility not only to advocate the benefits of these uh, countermeasures to pandemics, but to also say that, hey, when the pandemic starts in a city where there's this unique lab <laughs> working with exactly the type of virus, we need to investigate so that in the future, we don't have more of these ambiguous outbreaks happening, more of these uh, necessary conditions to, to to have vaccines and therapeutics on people. Like, I, I, I think that we don't want another pandemic, right? There's, there's no one who mm-hmm. wants another one of this happening in the, in the city with a lab in it again. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, it's like seeing Fauci and Collins hiding the smoking gun and then turning around saying, trust me to keep you safe. Come in, dine at my table. I've got you. I've got I'm going to make sure you're safe and you're well. And you're like, can we just talk about what I saw you do over there? Because I I don't know if I am safe in your hands and I've got questions. And so far, few real answers. Doctor, great to have you. Thanks for coming on. Alina Chan, everybody, uh, to be continued. Coming up, our friend Andrew Claven returns to the show with thoughts on Dark Brandon Part 2. <laughs> That's next. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, 
even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. Dark Brandon, part two. He was at it again last night in front of Union Station of all places in Washington, D.C., where stores are closing left and right in this economy. We were joking yesterday with Josh Holmes. Why didn't he just do it in front of Bagram Air Force Base uh, in Afghanistan? Why? Well, you know, so many places. If you wanted to highlight some of his administration's problems, Union Station, I guess, fit the bill just fine. Here to discuss that and more, one of our favorite guests, Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show and author of the newly released crime novel, A Strange Habit of Mind. And Andrew always keeps you turning the pages uh, in his crime novels is what he does now. One of the reasons he's a household name. Great to have you back. How are you? Good to see you, Megan. I'm doing great. What did you make of Dark Brandon Part Two saying this election Mm -hmm. is a battle between autocracy and democracy? If you vote for those Republicans, you're voting for autocrats. You're not a Democrat. You don't believe in democracy. Well, we're not just uh, Republicans. We're now mega MAGA Republicans. They're going to keep adding adjectives mega to this until it goes right off the page. You know, it's actually it's actually kind of an interesting moment. It, it really is, because not only did uh, he accuse Republicans of, of taking a hammer to Paul Pelosi, try to link that horrible attack on Pelosi to the Republicans and to January 6th and to Donald Trump. He basically says that the Republicans will destroy democracy by winning an election. And what's fascinating about this to me is that the media before the speech basically endorsed the speech after the speech endorsed the speech, basically saying, yes, this is this is right. You know, this violence is coming distinctly out of the Republican camp. No violence from the Democrats, no 2020 riots, no, you know, holding George Floyd up as a hero. None of that. Just January 6th is the only thing that ever happened. They're counting on this media dominance that they've had for so many years in an age when the Internet is stripping that dominance away. And that's why you're also seeing at the same time this fight with Elon Musk to keep him from lifting the censorship rules that have silenced so many innocent uh, conservative voices on Twitter. This is a fight about information. I mean, it's not just a fight about the election. Of course, it's a fight about the election. But what Biden is counting on is the old dominance that the left has had over our information systems and over our culture to uphold what is a lie. I mean, the the idea that Republicans are somehow unique in denying the legitimacy of an election is ridiculous. Hillary Clinton denied the legitimacy of Trump's election. Adam Schiff did. They denied the uh, legitimacy of George W. Bush's election. Stacey Abrams still thinks she's governor of Georgia, if not governor, emperor of her entire imagination. So They've, and they've called for violence. They've said there should be more violence in the street. Nancy Pelosi herself said there should be violence in the street. So they're really depending on their, their power to communicate this lie and to silence anybody who says, hey, you know what? If, if you look on YouTube, you can see Democrats doing the same things that some Republicans do. And I just don't think it's working. The polls show that it's not working. The polls are looking pretty good for the Republicans and a bad, very bad map uh, for the midterms. And that means that we have reached a paradigm shift. We have reached a moment when, for all of our worries about information dominance, the right is fighting back and it's starting Mm -hmm. to win. 
Now, that is fascinating. That's such an interesting take on it, that their their whole plot is falling apart. The thing that always worked for them is not working because you're right. This January 6th thing is all they've got. They've been shoving that in abortion. That's all they've been shoving on us for months now. And it's not getting the job done. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to double down on one of those failed narratives. To me, it's interesting. First of all, a word on Mega Maga. I was thinking, is it like Mega Maga Trump. And then I'm like, what if they called me Mega Maga? I'd be Megan Mega Maga. Like, they, it, it, if we like alliterate. Or maybe it'd be Mega Maga Megan. I don't know. I don't know. In any event. Um, so, so, yeah, so he goes out there and he just doubles down on what's already not working. And to me, it reminded me of we ran a clip up from MSNBC last week where they got together a Democrat and a Republican and an independent and they were asking them about the threat to democracy. And these three were like, eh, you know, the January 6th thing, like, eh, anyway, back to inflation. And then Vox just had the same kind of reporting. They did this. They went out and talked to voters like, what do you care about? What about January 6th? They were like, eh. But the economy. Yeah, let's talk. Right. And so what does he do? He goes out there last night and once again is back to Republicans, mega maga. And as you point out, this really low moment with Paul Pelosi. Let's run that. It's sought for. The assailant ended up using a hammer to smash Paul's skull. The assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol on January the 6th, when they broke windows, kicked in the doors, brutally attacked law enforcement, roamed the corridors, hunting for officials, and erected gallows to hang the former vice president, Mike Pence. It was an enraged mob. Wow. I I didn't hear any mention of Steve Scalise, who was shot by a Bernie Sanders loving fan who wasn't even said to be a lunatic. He was said to just be this rabid, you know, murder, murderous man. Um, I didn't hear any mention of Lee Zeldin, Republican candidate for governor of New York, who they attempted to stab on stage just two months ago. Right. Like it's all about what happened to Paul Pelosi, because he thinks because they yelled, where's Nancy uh, at the January 6th riot, they can tie that to this guy going into Nancy Pelosi's house saying, hey, where's Nancy? (laughs) Okay. You know, there was a shooting outside Lee Zeldin's house and the press asked Zeldin to come out and talk about it. So he came out and the first question is, why are you politicizing this incident? And I think that they, you know, it it reminds me of the last scene of Singing in the Rain, where they pull back the curtain and you find out that the villainous woman actually has somebody dubbing her voice. Uh, That's the way the media has been all these years. It has been basically dubbing the voice of the Democrats and it's gotten worse and worse as they've lost control of the narrative. I mean, you know, the Internet is like the invention of the printing press. It really is. It has spread information uh, to places that the people in power don't want it to go. That's exactly what happened when the printing press came out. Uh, That's where the Reformation began. That's where all the religious wars began. And now we have this moment when not the dominant religion, but the dominant elite are basically being exposed and they're being exposed for having uh, their own agenda, for uh, propping up their own power at the expense of ordinary people. One of the things that always makes me laugh in a sort of morbid way is when Democrats specifically try to tell us that the economy is good. And, you know, you're sitting there trying to figure out how you're going to make your salary stretch to take in the inflation that they've caused with this fantastic narrative about uh, climate emergency. So we have to get rid of our energy independence and become the slaves of oil rich tyrants for this emergency that actually 
it doesn't exist. The science actually shows that this is not an existential threat. And then when you can't afford to feed your kids, you can't afford to get them new clothes, they come and tell you, no, inflation's fine. Don't worry about inflation. Worry about abortion. <laughs> Go like, well, I have six kids. Abortion is not on the table. I just want to feed them. Yeah, but don't worry about that. They depend always on this kind of fantasy world that they were able to create for several decades uh, by owning not just the news media, but also the entertainment media and the academy and the publishing industry. And all of that is just starting to tremble and shake. And that's why you're seeing this kind of hysteria on the, on the left. And, and that hysteria is, you know, it is, is the real threat of where violence comes from. If you have people who are telling the New York Times, don't tell us the truth about Biden's dementia. That happened the other day. The New York Times actually reported on the fact that Biden's uh, difficulties with keeping the facts straight are getting worse and worse. And they were just excoriated by their own readers. Don't tell us this. Don't tell the truth when there's an election on the line. And so when you have when you have all these people who are suddenly being exposed to ideas they've never heard before, you know, the, the thing is, Megan, you and I know everything the left thinks because we're surrounded by them. We see them all the time. They, mm. they don't even know we exist. They don't even know we have opinions that they might agree with. They don't even know that we have thoughtful, uh, nuanced opinions, that we don't follow our leaders off cliffs, that we actually sometimes disagree with them. They have no idea because they never see us. They never see us on their media. They don't want to see us in the New York Times. They only see us attacked. And when that wall breaks down, there is going to be hell to pay. And it might be Tuesday. It might actually mm -hmm. begin on Tuesday. But that wall is already becoming very permeable, that wall of information. This is a major thing. This is a major shift from one epoch to a new epoch. And that's why everything's so unsettled. But I'm, I'm, I'm right so now right. very uh, optimistic, not just about the election, but about the age to come. Well, another example of what you were just discussing was what they did to Dasha Burns at NBC when she had the nerve to say, hey, I sat down with John Fetterman. And in the prelude to the actual interview where he didn't have the closed captioning thing, he really didn't seem to be able to understand any of the small talk. And the left just descended on her. That is a total appropriate, totally appropriate thing for a reporter to add. It's color. It's another way in to understand the candidate. I 100 percent would have done that with anybody. And um, they attacked her. They said she was wrong. All these reporters came out and said, I interviewed him. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Now they look like fools because we saw him at the debate, barely being able to understand with the closed captioning. Dasha Burns is vindicated. She won't be getting an apology. But yeah, they do attack their own when any of them try to do honest reporting. And to your other point, Andrew, about the White House just continually telling us don't it, there is no economic problem. You know, first inflation was transitory. It doesn't exist. It's whatever. It's, it's just you worried about your soul cycle. I don't remember how they tried to dismiss it all the different ways. They they sent out a tweet, this crazy tweet. I think it was yesterday on Social Security benefits. Now, because of the law, Social Security benefits go up when inflation goes up. That, that was that was passed. I went back during President Nixon, I think. And um, so it's automatic because that's a fixed income. So the White House sends out a tweet that reads, it was on Tuesday, seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks <laughs> in 10 years through President Biden's leadership. Okay, so somebody there is a complete idiot. <laughs> I love, I love but, it, but here's the interesting thing. They they took it back after because Elon Musk is now in charge yes. of Twitter. He allowed readers to uh, fact check it and to yes. say that that's not the case. And that's why so they, they took added, it down. And that's why they're panicked. Now that it's Elon's Twitter, um, that Twitter added 
a quote, added context. This never would have happened under the old regime at Twitter. Added context disclaimer underneath the tweet, noting that the increase was not an intentional decision on the part of the president's quote, seniors will receive a large Social Security benefit increase due to the annual cost of living adjustment, which is based on the inflation rate. President Nixon in 1972 signed into law automatic benefit adjustment tied to the consumer price index. And then the White House deleted the tweet because they're just so dumb. They're just so dumb. And then Karine Jean-Pierre, who probably wrote the tweet to begin with, was asked about it by a reporter. Here's how that went. Was it removed because of the addition of the note or was it removed because of the concern about the uh, veracity of the message? So it was, I, look, the tweet was not complete. Usually when we put out a tweet, uh, we posted with context and it did not have that context. Once again, the tweet read, seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership. That's not a context problem. That's what we call a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, that's the other thing. Their big talking point is disinformation. This is the way they're trying to get control over the information flow is by accusing the right of disinformation. But we think back on what they've done on social media, uh, calling the Hunter Biden laptop story Russian misinformation, uh, what Dr. Chan was just talking about on your show, this uh, suppression of the idea that our research, our partially funded research, might have had something to do with the Chinese virus spreading. You know, all of these things that they have done uh, that are just lies and disinformation. And then they pick out some guy who's, uh, you know, a conspiracy theorist who mouths off on the right and they compare that to the United States government lying. It's not the Mm -hmm. same thing. And so really this, again, it's this democratization of information that is driving them up the wall for the for one big reason, which is that their policies don't work. I mean, this is the thing. An election is essentially a job interview. You know, a campaign is a job interview. And these guys have come into the room to, and said to the boss, yes, we're going to bankrupt your company. We're going to make all your employees hate one another. We're going to destroy your equipment, but we're in favor of abortion. So, you know, you should hire us. And any any employer is going to look at that and think, nah, you know, before before we talk about abortion, let's talk about whether you can make my company any better. Well, if the company is the United States and they're trying to run it, you've got to be competent enough to make things run. And they are not because their ideas don't work. It's It's really only since Obama that they have stopped changing their minds when the electorate tells them they're wrong. It, you know, remember Bill Clinton getting shellacked and saying, OK, we hear you. We're going to get rid of this health care idea. We're going to stop. We're going to move to the right. We're going to move to the center. Obama never did that. It was like he never changed. He was just an absolute engine moving forward. And now Joe Biden has taken that on and he's not as talented a politician uh, and he's not getting away with it. Well, I heard Gavin Newsom out there uh today there yesterday talking about how my party's getting killed on messaging we're getting killed on message we have the wrong <laughs> message this, this is how it goes right they when they lose because it, well, for whatever reason the voters vote them out or things aren't looking good for them in the polls it's we were off on the messaging or the voters are as stupido they're dumb <laughs> they, they just they're too dumb to know what's good for them they're deplorables hillary clinton revised that just the other day they're deplorables who are too stupid to really be placed in charge of our republic and so we need smarter voters and by that we mean elite democrats right so we're, th- this is a messaging problem is the latest thing like if, if people would just only understand so what what message should they be right like how are they going to explain the inflation away like that's their problem is they have no good message on that 
Right. But but notice, though, that that's what they think about because they've, they've been doing it all this time. This thing about uh, slandering their opposition, which they've been doing now for 50 or 60 years, telling you you're racist. You know, even if you won't go to their stupid movies, they call you like homophobic or whatever, transphobic right, right. words, words that mean nothing, by the way. There's no such thing, for instance, as an Islamophobe. Nobody has an irrational fear of Islamic people. Nobody has an irrational fear of gay people or trans transgender people. We have questions and we have objections to things and to actions. And those things should be listened to and debated and talked about. But instead, well, by the way, just to interject, said, nobody would accuse you of being anti-gay. Spencer, your son, who we both love, is openly gay and in a gay marriage. And I am definitely not anti-gay, but half my friends are gay and lesbian and in, in marriages. But that doesn't make me want to go see a gay orgy on film on the big screen <laughs> for my entertainment. <laughs> And it doesn't mean that I'm not open to debating with people about what this means for our society and is it good and, you know, is is gay marriage marriage? These are all open questions that I think should be talked about by people of goodwill. They shouldn't be, they, we don't have to sling hate at each other, but we can, we can at least debate these serious issues and these serious changes in our social structure. Uh, but no, it's always that we're phobic and we're, you know, we stink and our religion stinks and our country stinks and our country is racist. And then they wonder, why they get Donald Trump. They wonder why people are angry. Those, why are those Republicans always so angry? You know, you, you kick people in the face for 50, 60 years. You de demean their values, do demean their lifestyle, you demean their opinions, and then you wonder why they hate you. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that, that is why they only want the elite Democrats to vote and why they think that if they lose, they have lost democracy is lost. You know, mm -hmm. it's, they're the only people on earth who believe that democracy can be lost in an election. Uh, you know, that, yeah. that is, is actually how democracy works. And That's sometimes, what Tom you, win, was sometimes saying. you lose. Tom Cotton was saying yeah. they're, they're not afraid of democracy going away. They're afraid of democracy making them go away. <laughs> well, that's um, exactly right. That is exactly so, right. So they have been able to shame many Americans out of expressing their legitimately held yep. viewpoints that are not racist or bigoted and so on, but they object, object to some of these things you mentioned. One area that they have not yet been able to take over has been the courts. Uh, the courts have been a pretty good stalwart, not entirely perfect by any means, but a pretty good stalwart against this woke agenda. And in particular, now we've got reason to believe in the Supreme Court, which is now 6-3, uh, conservative Dem, conservative liberal. And it's amazing. I mean, I haven't seen a court like this in my li lifetime. I'm I'm, you know, even before I offered more of my positions publicly before I got this show, I was open about the fact that I was a more federalist society type uh, lawyer. And, and that's the way I look at the law, you know, more originalist in my thinking, more, you know, Thomas and Scalia than Ginsburg and Stevens. In any event, that is one of the reasons why I have a lot of hope, because the Supreme Court is very conservative and it's very young. And I'm excited about that fact. Well, that takes us to uh, Monday's argument on affirmative action mm -hmm. in, at the university level. Two big cases going up in which this group is saying you cannot, you, you've got to take race out of the consideration now in deciding who gets into these elite universities or any university. 25 years ago, the, the Supreme Court considered whether it was time then. And they said, it's going to be time. This is, you're right. This is not actually constitutional. We feel very hinky about it, but we're going to find an exception and just say you can do it for like another maybe 20 years just to like right the wrongs of the past. But I mean, it was kind of a made up decision. But now the court has been asked to take another look at it and they're going to strike it down. They are and I'm listening that to that argument. Right it's going away. Uh, they're going to say you can no longer consider race as one of the factors in deciding whether somebody gets in. And one of the justices who was actually Katanji Brown Jackson was saying, well, I'm not comfortable with this because what about all the other factors that you can consider? In fact, I think we have that soundbite. Do we have that soundbite? Um, in any event, she was basically saying, 
you know, there's all these other things that you can consider when it comes to diversity. You can consider some, whether somebody's a veteran. You can consider, you know, whether they're in a wheelchair. Um, why wouldn't you be able to consider race? And really, the answer is because the Constitution says you can't just like if I say to somebody, I think your veteran status is a plus for you. That's not diminishing somebody who's not a veteran. But if you prioritize one racial group, there's another racial group that is definitely being deprioritized. And that's not constitutional. That's a problem. In any event, um, people are getting very upset over this. And we're going to get the, the you know, illegitimate Supreme Court um, accusations once again. There was an amazing moment where Justice Alito asked the, the lawyers arguing to keep this legal about how does it work? Like a student comes in and says, I'm, I'm African-American or I'm Native American. Do you check? And the answer was no. We accept it's an honor system. He says, what if they say my grandfather, one grandfather was a member of protected class? Do you check? No. Honor system. What if they say my my great grandfather? <laughs> what if they say my great great grandfather? Like, how do we figure out who's in a protected class, racial class that you would protect and you would favor? They, you know, he was kind of get, trying to get at this and then had this amazing reference to what was very clearly Elizabeth Warren in Soundbite 10. Listen. It's family lore that we have an ancestor who was an American Indian. So I think in that particular circumstance, uh, it would be uh, not accurate for them to say. Uh, based well, I, on I identify lore. as an American Indian because I've always been told that some ancestor uh, back in the old days was an American was an American Indian. Yeah, so I think in that circumstance, uh, it, it would be very unlikely that that person was telling the truth. <laughs> That's 100 percent an Elizabeth Warren reference, is it not? <laughs> it, it's also a, it's a great uh, soundbite because it strikes at the fact that race is really a degraded and stupid way to regard other people. You know, to, to think about people in terms of their race, there are a few legitimate things you can say about racial differences, but very, very few. And we don't really know very much about it. And the things that we call races, like we have African-Americans, that's not a, an actual race. And so it's so, it, it's so nonsensical and it strikes at the very heart of the American project. It always has. My journey from left to right began with the Backey decision. I remember the day when they talked about affirmative action when I thought, well, the left is really out of ideas. And the reason they're out of ideas is because they've poured an immense amount of money into great society programs that have made the lives of black people worse. And affirmative action makes the lives of black people worse. It puts black people into black students into situations that they might not be qualified for simply because of the color of their skin and increases their rate of failure and increases the number of black students who get out of a difficult subject that they want to study and move into an easier subject in order to survive a school that they shouldn't have been in. in Ones the that don't place. pay as well. Ones that don't pay and as well either. That's that's right. That's right. It is just just like every other thing that uh, that pulls people out because of race. Uh, it just damages the people it's supposed to help. And, and the third thing about this that drives me insane is, of course, it is just so discriminatory against Asian people. Um, you know, Stanford University, I believe it was, just apologized to Jews for their discriminatory um, practices against them in the past, like 70 years ago, because they didn't want all those smart Jews coming in and taking all the places. Now, <laughs> I'm glad they apologized just in time to start discriminating against Asians, because Asians are <laughs> traditionally hardworking and uh, intellectual, and they're coming in. I mean, my 
my alma mater, Berkeley, is now heavily Asian. When I went there, I was startled uh, by the Asian population. They want that because they're thinking in terms of race. Uh, they want that to stop. And my feeling about this is like, you know what, if if you can't see people like an American, that each person has his own life, his own individual, sacred, precious life that should be treated on its own. If you can't start to say merit is the thing that moves you forward, hard work is the thing that moves you forward, then go to some other country where they're racist. You know, I mean, this is this is the whole American project is to see if we can be a, a country based on an idea, based on a series of ideas that can take people in and turn them into Americans. That has been our, uh, you know, our standard uh, idea really from the beginning that we were not going to be a racist country or a racially based country. Uh, and, and all the stuff that went on, the slavery and the Jim Crow and all that stuff was wrong because it violated the American idea. This violates the American idea too. There is no such thing as good racism. There is no such thing as yeah, anti right. you know, opposite racism. Well it's all bad. We are made in the image of God and almighty God. And the Bible doesn't say black people are made in the image of God or white people. It's all of us. And if we don't treat each other like that, the American project is over. Well said. There is no such thing as good racism. I think it was Elena Kagan who was saying, well, to be black in America means your chances of going to an underfunded and poor school at the elementary, you know, K through 12 level is much higher um, to have had certain di disadvantages built in. I know it's, it's higher making no distinction, by the way, between, uh, you know, what about black immigrants? Do they do they get all the advantages? You know, or what, what if what if you're black, but you're not descended from slaves? You know, like, uh, no. OK, everybody's just considered presumed disadvantage based on the color of their skin. What if both of your parents are doctors? No, presumed disadvantage based on the color of your skin. Um, so she tried to get to basically economic disadvantage, which she tried to you know, put as a label around all black people. Black people tend to be economically disadvantaged and therefore they need this leg up. Well, we're, if that's your case, then you're talking about economic diversity. That's what you actually want to get to. You're not talking about what about the white kids? What about the Hispanic kids? What about the Asian kids who grow up in very, very poor families? Should they be given a leg up? Because that's not the way Harvard's doing it. It's all about melanin. And this is what Clarence Thomas was trying to get to. And he was like, I don't really know what you mean when you say diversity that we do have at SOT 11. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, it seems to mean everything for everyone. First, we define diversity the way this court has in its court's precedence, which means a broadly diverse set of criteria that extends to all different backgrounds and perspectives and not solely limited to race. Tell me what the educational benefits are. The most concrete possible scenario is, is stock trading. And there are studies that find that racially diverse groups of people making trading decisions perform at a higher level, make more efficient trading decisions. And the mechanism there uh, is that it reduces groupthink and people have longer and more sustained disagreement. And that leads to a more efficient outcome. Well. I guess I don't put much stock in that because I've heard similar arguments in favor of segregation, too. Mm. So he says, give me an example. He says, it's not all about race. OK, give me an example of what it means. Oh, here's one about race. This is the only one I have. <laughs> and Thomas says, I don't find that persuasive because actually what you're talking about is segregation could actually lead to good results as well. But when they got pressed on the economic disadvantages some kids have and so on, they, they had no answer for it. And that's what the, the conservatives were saying, which is you cannot make skin color the ultimate thing. What they're doing right now, Andrew, is they're saying to the Asian kids, 
who grew up poor, who grew up with no advantages, who went to crappy schools, but just worked very, very hard after school and at night. You're out because we have the secret personality test and we can downgrade you because of your ethnic heritage. Thanks to our personality test, we can say you suck as a person, but really it's because you're Asian. And then we can upgrade the people who happen to fall into racial classifications that we like people who happen to be black or perhaps brown. Those are the ones we like. So they get up. I mean, this is insane. What we're actually doing is totally unconstitutional. Absolutely. And, you know, first of all, I I have to say, I don't know what we did to deserve Clarence Thomas, but I hope we keep doing it because he is a gift, a gift from God. Uh, but, But the thing is, this is a question of failed policy all around all around the bend. You know, the black uh, movement into the middle classes was faster before the Great Society was instituted. That's the thing that really destroyed uh, the black family and really uh, made people dependent on government largesse and slowed the rise of black Americans into the middle class. And that those Great Society programs provide lots and lots of money for Democrats to buy votes with. They do not want to look at what, you know, they're always talking about the uh, core uh, problems. Where where does the problem come from? What's what are the root causes? The, the root cause is the fact that the black family has fallen apart and fatherless children do very badly. And that really is the thing that they don't want to face because that is based on great society programs that basically paid people to have children out of wedlock. Mm. Before I let you go, a strange habit of mind. Give me a couple lines on why I want to read it. Now it's the sequel to When Christmas Comes, which was a USA Today bestseller. The hero Cameron Winter is fighting a social media billionaire uh, whose opponents get canceled for good. Uh, and it's uh, this is the first character I've ever wanted to make into a series. I have 30 years of crime writing. This is the first time I've had a character I want to make into a series. So I hope people will turn up for this book. The reviews have been ecstatic. Uh, take a look on Amazon. I think you'll really like this book. I'm into crime. It's a nice escape to read about somebody else's problems. That's I appreciate it. It makes me feel better about my life. Andrew Clavin, a pleasure as always. Thank you for coming on. Great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.